You also learn a better mind-body connection when you're wearing the CGM and you're compiling that against your subjective experience. So if we think about diabetes, our glucose is high and our insulin is high, which means we have a lot of energy that's not being utilized well. It's, it's so much easier to capture those things early to see what I call yellow flags rather than red flags. I feel fairly confident that we pretty much never want to see our glucose above 160, and then we should try to aim to stay below 140 most of the time. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Super excited for today's episode. It is about a topic that you guys are obsessed with, continuous glucose monitors. When I said I was doing a Q&A episode on continuous glucose monitors, oh my goodness, I got so many questions. And Kara Collier is so informative. She really, really knows the answers to all of these things. So I really think you guys will enjoy this. If after listening, you would like to get your own CGM, you can go to melanieavalon.com slash CGM and the coupon code Melanie Avalon will get you a discount on that. You can also join my Facebook group for CGMs. The name of that group is Lumen, Biosense, and CGMs, Carbs, Fat, Ketones, and Blood Sugar. Or you can just type in Melanie Avalon. That will probably find it. And then also definitely join me in my main Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting, Plus Real Foods, Plus Life. That group will have a giveaway for this episode. Just comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then there will be another giveaway on my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. Also check out the announcement post there to again, enter to win something that I love. These show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash CGM questions. Those show notes will have a full transcript. So definitely check that out. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. 
Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, clean beauty and safe skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Kara Collier. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with a topic that I know I have become obsessed with. I know so many of my listeners have become obsessed with. And I was thinking about this before we started recording just now, just how far we and people and the biohacking sphere and companies have come in this whole sphere, which is the world of continuous glucose monitors, also known as CGMs. I was thinking about the first time I ever heard about a CGM. I think it was an interview with David Sinclair on Rhonda Patrick, and they were talking about you know wearing this thing on their arm that measured their blood sugar constantly, and that just seemed so unapproachable at the time. I was like, oh man, that's like that's like next level. And now here we are. I've worn one for months. I don't have one one right now, but I've worn one for a long time. So many of my listeners have as well. I have done an interview with NutriSense before, so I will put a link in the show notes to that. But I am here back again today with. Kara Collier. She actually founded NutriSense and now she is the director of nutrition there. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified nutrition support clinician. And her background is in clinical nutrition, nutrition technology, and entrepreneurship, which sort of makes sense manifesting in um, the company of NutriSense. And in the interest of time, because the purpose of today's episode is I have received so many questions from listeners about CGMs, especially since listeners have 
have started wearing them themselves or they still have questions. So today's episode is going to be a Q&A. So what I will do is I will refer listeners, I'll put a link in the show notes to the first conversation that we had because we really dived deep, deep, deep into continuous glucose monitors. So that's a really nice background episode if listeners would like to listen to that. But today's episode is more rapid fire Q&A style. Kara, thank you so much for being here again. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be back. I love Q&A episodes. I think they're, they're so fun because we just get to go all over the place and see what see what the people are thinking. But um, actually, I wasn't anticipating asking this, but I have a question for you. What is the most common question you get about CGMs? That is a good question. It probably depends a little bit on the audience, whether it's someone who's never heard of it versus someone who's using one. For kind of the lay audience or where maybe they see it on my arm, the most common question is, isn't that for diabetics? <laughs> or do you have diabetes? So that's the most common in that situation where someone who's using one and they're wanting to know more information. I think the most common questions probably come into is this good or bad? What me, what happens when my glucose spikes but comes down or stays elevated? The most common trend question I get is, why is my glucose doing X, Y, Z while I'm sleeping? Kind of those overnight sleeping values because it was a mystery before a CGM. So a lot of that's really novel information for people. So I think just kind of the, the nitty gritty of the trends and what's happening with the data itself is quite a common question. For listeners to clarify, what is a continuous glucose monitor? Just so everybody's on the same page. Sure. Yeah. So technically it is considered a medical device and it is a small, you know, quarter size device that you can put on the back of your arm. You put it on at home. You don't need any sort of medical assistance to put it on. And I always describe it as kind of like an easy button. It comes in this applicator and you push the button and it's in the back of your arm. And what's happening when you're pushing the button is it's putting this really tiny, flexible, painless microfilament just below the surface of the skin. And that microfilament actually allows the sensor to then put continuous glucose data onto your phone. So if we wanted to know what our glucose was doing before this, we would have to prick our finger, as probably many of your listeners are familiar with, or you went to you know, a doctor's office, got your lab drawn, and got a snapshot in time of your glucose. So instead, a continuous glucose monitor is measuring glucose levels right below the surface of the skin every 5 to 15 minutes, kind of depending on which device you're using, and brings that to your phone. And now suddenly, we have this 24-hour graph of what's happening with our glucose. And this device lasts for two weeks. So for two weeks, you get this continuous data stream. And if you want more than two weeks of data, you just peel it off like a Band-Aid and put on another one. And, and that's how they work. You know, they are historically used for diabetics, which is why I get that question so often. If you see ads on TV for CGM, it's usually geared towards a diabetic. And in the US, it does need a medical prescription as well. So most likely you're going, if you're not a diabetic, you're going to have to convince your physician to write you a prescription if you care about glucose for other reasons, such as biohacking or just health optimization. And probably 99% of the time, they will not do that for you, unfortunately, which is part of the reason we started NutriSense. We want to remove that barrier to entry so that everybody has meaningful data about their bodies. We really believe that in order to have optimal health and to improve health, in this society, we need to have access to meaningful data. And so step one is making sure people have access. And then step two is making sure it's digestible and actionable, which is kind of where our software and service comes in. 
I'm so grateful to you guys for really, I mean, making this all accessible to listeners. And um, I'm just thinking now what people say to me, because people will ask me a lot, because for listeners, you put um, like a patch over it. So the sensor is not just, you know, out there. Most people do, if they know what it is, they they think it's for diabetes. And it's funny, sometimes like I've had conversations where people won't comment on it. And then at the end I'm leaving and they're like, I hope everything goes well with your diabetes. And I'm like, oh no, like I'm not, <laughs> like I don't have diabetes, which I'm very grateful for. So, okay. You touched on actually a lot of things that a lot of listeners have questions about. So first question, this comes from John. Why wear CGM if you don't have high sugar levels? That's a great question. I will try not to take a very long time to answer that question because there's many different reasons, different rabbit holes we could go down there. I think to take a step back, why measure glucose if you don't have diabetes? The first way to address that is why is glucose important in the first place? And yes, high glucose levels are an indicator of diabetes and diabetes is an epidemic especially in this country. So it's very important to make sure we're not headed towards that path. But glucose isn't just a marker of diabetes. It's so much more than that. I like to explain glucose as a vital sign because just like blood pressure or heart rate, our glucose fluctuates depending on what's happening in our environment. So it's going to fluctuate either to appropriate levels or not appropriate levels, depending on what we're eating, how much we're eating, what type of food we're eating, you know, how often we're eating, but also our stress levels, our sleep levels, our physical activity or lack of physical activity. So all these core pillars of good health habits is going to then be reflected in our glucose levels. So it gives us this insight into how we're just working as a metabolic being. So I always kind of describe a human body as having a metabolic engine, just like a car has an engine. Us humans have a metabolic engine and the fuel that helps this engine be, you know, powerful and run all of our systems is glucose primarily. So whether you're eating carbohydrates or not, there's glucose in your bloodstream that is helping to fuel all the different processes that make us function optimally. So we're work best when glucose is in a physiologically normal range. And then we start to see all types of consequences if it's getting out of range. So that's kind of first a step back of why glucose as a metric is important. And then we have to think about, well, what's the best way to understand our glucose levels if we understand now how important glucose is? And as I mentioned, there's a few traditional metrics. You could get a hemoglobin A1C. That has some flaws. It's not perfect test. We could kind of go down that rabbit hole if you want, but it basically gives you an average glucose level. So average is useful, but it's not going to tell you how high it's going, how low it's going, how much swings are going on. And then the other blood value lab you could get is the fasting glucose level, which again is helpful, but it's telling us what's happening in the fasted state on that particular day and that snapshot of time. Our fasting glucose can fluctuate day to day, and it's also not telling us anything about what's happening in the fed state. So then our third option is the glucometers, our finger prick. So this is, you know, your Keto Mojo, your Contours, all the different brands you can get over the counter on Amazon. And this is a step up, I think, because you can check it at random times. You can kind of check it after you've eaten, um, different days of the week to kind of see what's going on. But it's still snapshots here and there. You know, let's say you check 
on your finger prick before a meal and two hours after, and they're both 90 or 70, and you might think all is good to go, but really you are spiking very high in between that, but it's just hard to capture with a finger prick. So CGM is the first type of glucose monitoring that gives us that movie view rather than a snapshot. And that movie allows you to know exactly how you're responding to meals, what's happening while you're sleeping, how your fasting glucose is trending from day to day, what those overall average values really are, and your swings. So it helps us to not cherry pick the data, miss things that we might be missing, and really get a good idea of kind of what's happening. And then, sorry to keep going. (laughs) Just to, to wrap that up is then we start to see when we use this better metric, the CGM, we start to see things that we can't capture on these other metrics. And I think that's the really big thing is a lot of people are like, well, my A1C is normal. I don't need to wear a CGM. But a lot of people are having really high glucose spikes that aren't captured on the A1C, or they're having hypoglycemic dips, or they're having some sort of irregularity in their values that we just completely didn't capture in those other metrics. And it's so much easier to capture those things early to see what I call yellow flags rather than red flags, because it takes decades to develop even prediabetes and then more decades to get into diabetes. So early warning signs are happening, you know, so long before. And so if we can catch them early and make small changes, maybe it's just your go-to lunch meal is giving you a huge glucose spike. If you can swap that now before you end up in the prediabetes, diabetes range, then it's so much easier than when we have diabetes. It's not that we can't still address that and reverse that, but it's going to take a lot more work and a lot more time to then get back into that normal range. So prevention, catching things early, I think is really just the way that we need to refocus our attention. And that's what I try to get people to think more about, because it's not the traditional mindset about healthcare. Your listeners, I'm sure, are more aware, more attuned to prevention and kind of catching things early, but it's so important. Yeah, I will say wearing a CGM has honestly been, I say this every time, but one of the most eye-opening experiences because especially in the whole biohacking and health world, I feel like we try we try so many different things for health, you know, mental, physical, so many different tools and techniques and tips and supplements and it can seem a little bit subjective in evaluating what it's actually doing if it's working. But with a continuous glucose monitor, you literally see how your body is responding to your dietary and lifestyle choices. So it's just profound, in my opinion. This wasn't even a question, but um, a listener, Joan, she wrote in what her understanding was of the HbA1c thing. So maybe I could read this and you can let me know if this is like what's going on. She said, I've been reading a lot about them. My understanding is CGMs are better than the annual test. That's either a single test, fasting or otherwise, or more likely an HbA1c, which uses glycation of your hemoglobin to estimate what your average blood glucose is. It makes an assumption that your hemoglobin is of a certain size and that it lasts about 90 days. If yours lasts longer or shorter, that will make the result inaccurate. For instance, if you have anemia, it will be artificially low. Also, a healthy average could be hiding a lot of dangerous spikes. Once you wear the monitor, you know what your blood glucose actually is, so you don't need a proxy measure like HbA1c. I will not worry about my result next time because I now know what my actually average blood glucose is and what spikes it. Is that a pretty accurate understanding? Yeah, I think, I think she nailed it. 
Awesome. So we have a question from Peggy. She wants to know how long do you have to use them to actually get useful data? Great question. I would recommend at least a month as kind of a minimum time frame. And I think there are a few different use cases. If you're fairly knowledgeable about kind of health and nutrition, and maybe you're generally healthy and you just kind of want to see again, what are my true glucose values doing? What are some of my favorite meals? How am I responding to those? You know, how is my basic routine affecting my health? I think a month is a great time to kind of get that insight, understand the basics, and then maybe be able to take out a few key pieces of information. Where I would recommend at least three months if maybe you have a specific health condition that you really want to optimize. So maybe you do have prediabetes or PCOS, or you feel like you're getting hypoglycemic, you know, some more concrete goal that might take some time to kind of experiment around, see some progress with, try a few different things. Or maybe if you really don't know what to eat, maybe you're just kind of eating a general diet and you want to experiment with more of a ketogenic diet, or maybe then you want to see what a higher carbohydrate diet does. If you want to take time to try a bunch of different dietary approaches, I would recommend uh, three months for that. But it really kind of depends on where people at, but each sensor lasts two weeks. So I would recommend at least two sensors for most people. And I will say, especially if you know, if you just get the two weeks, it's just so eye-opening and it's like, oh, <laughs> you you tend that you tend to want to go a little bit longer. Okay, I've got two questions and these kind of go together. So I'll read both of them, but they have to do with the data and the studies surrounding everything. So Judith wants to know, how much do we really know about glucose metabolism and longevity? What are the optimal readings? Do we know how to eat or not to eat to get them? And then Stephanie wants to know, what data or studies are used to establish what is considered a healthy rise and fall in glucose? Do we really know if these recommendations are optimal or are they just speculation? Could it actually be that low stable glucose is harmful long-term? So the studies behind everything, where is it coming from and what has led to the general recommendations that we have today? Yeah, those are really great questions. And I would say there are certain thresholds that we can feel very, very confident in of these are goals of where we want to stay within. And I can go through each of those because those were more set towards kind of identifying what would be considered prediabetes and then diabetes. And then where I would say it's definitely still gray is what would be optimal. So we know what is normal and and what would be considered non-diabetic versus pre-diabetic. And then there is less clarity around, well, what is absolutely optimal for longevity? And there's definitely research there. There's not nothing. And we personally have had thousands of customers go through. So we've analyzed our own data and kind of categorized into people who are non-diabetic or diabetic to see what is at least happening in the real world. So from there, we can get pretty good conclusions. But I don't think we can say with absolute certainty in order to optimize longevity, you must never go above this threshold. So I can kind of go through the nuances of the different trends to look for and and what's super clear and what's less clear. And this is actually a great question because I think there are a lot of voices in the space right now talking about glucose, talking about CGMs. And unfortunately, I think there are some people kind of talking about this with more certainty than there is. And I think that that creates unnecessary potential fear or unnecessary potential restriction because some people are saying, well, maybe glucose should never go above a hundred because there was 
one observational study about that. And now everyone is, you know, eating nothing because they're scared of their glucose going high. And, and I actually think that's really dangerous. So I think it's a really good question. So I will start the nuanced conversation and try not to be too long-winded, but (laughs) yeah. So the first category we're really thinking about is fasting glucose and that's when you're fasted. So technically being fasted from the research standpoint is at least eight hours without food. And we have pretty good evidence that we want to keep that below 90, probably in the 70 to 90 range. Although a lot of non-diabetics have glucose in the 60s, sometimes even lower and feel really great. And we don't have evidence that that's a bad thing. Pre-diabetic would be when you're starting to go above that 100 threshold. So we know for sure we don't want to see it up above that too often. But there is a good amount of research there that below 90 is probably more optimal. I would say I feel fairly confident with the body of research behind that one. And then there's average glucose. So this is kind of what equates to a hemoglobin A1C. As we mentioned, it's a proxy for your average glucose. And we have fairly good evidence that we want to keep that below 105. So 105 average glucose is equivalent to, I believe, 5.3% of an A1C, where technical prediabetes threshold is 5.7. So I would say there's a little bit of a gray area where there's a pretty significant body of evidence that shows 5.7 to 5.3 is considered non-diabetic, but it increases your risk. So we might want to keep that more below 5.3% A1C, which again is equivalent to 105 milligrams per deciliter, which is what the actual average glucose would come out to. So I would say both of those are fairly strong. A lot of evidence is specifically pointing towards mortality, longevity, which of course are, are linked together, and also insulin resistance and predictors of future diabetes. And then I would say what has the least amount of clarity would be more in that postprandial window. So that just means postprandial just means after a meal. So this is kind of all things related to when does your glucose spike, right? What happens after you're eating? We know from the diabetes research that there are two metrics that are very clearly defined from diabetes is that any random glucose above 200 is an independent diagnostic criteria for diabetes. So if we're ever going above 200, that would be a big warning sign that is clearly established in the literature. And the other thing that is clearly established in the diabetes world is that after a glucose challenge, so an oral glucose tolerance test where you chug a boatload of glucose and you see what happens to your body, you're basically stressing the system. If two hours after you've drank that glucose challenge, your glucose is above 140, then that is a diagnostic criteria for diabetes. So it doesn't give us a ton to work off. We know we don't want to go above 200, and we know two hours after a meal or a challenge, we want to be below 140. Then here, there's a a good amount of research for those postprandial, more towards the lens of longevity and optimization. But I would say, again, I think this is the fuzziest area. If we're talking the strictest guidelines where I feel comfortable with how much research is out there, there is a handful of research showing that a peak glucose above 140, so not just two hours after a meal, but at any point in time in the day or night, might start to increase your risk. So there are some studies that show when glucose goes above 140, we see reduced insulin sensitivity, we see increased risk of diabetes down the road, some impaired beta cell function higher levels of insulinemia that are usually associated with that. So we're starting to see some increased risk. 
And then there's an even greater body of research that shows when we have spikes above 160, there's a lot more risks associated with that. So I feel fairly confident that we pretty much never want to see our glucose above 160. And then we should try to aim to stay below 140 most of the time. And I like to remind people that our bodies aren't this like most of the time, actually. I mean, some people have very sensitive bodies. And so this is a generalization, but we're not like a fragile microsystem where if we have one glucose spike to 145, like everything breaks, <laughs> you know, it's a learning experience that you want to see that on the data, especially if it's a go-to meal. If you eat this meal every day and you're spiking to 150, that's a good moment to decide, okay, I don't want to be above 140 on a daily basis. If it happens every once in a while at an event or a weekend thing, it's probably okay. But if it's going above 160, then we really want to dig in deeper of maybe is there some underlying metabolic dysfunction going on, insulin resistance, let's probe into this more. So I, I hopefully that kind of provides some clarity. There are definitely people that say when I go, when my glucose goes above 120 or even 110, I feel cruddy. I don't feel like myself. I have brain fog. And I think that is a very legitimate experience. I think we are all different. And so you also learn a better mind-body connection when you're wearing the CGM and you're compiling that against your subjective experience. So if you feel best at a certain glucose range, do that, you know, but if you're feeling the same at all levels, then I would aim for most of the time, stay below 140. And then if we're getting above that 160 range, we really need to dig a little deeper. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I don't think I had ever actually realized about those two proxies, the the over 200 or the the two hours later after eating above 140. I do intermittent fasting and then I do in my eating window either 
low carb or low fat. I don't really combine the two. But normally when I do the high carb, low fat, it normally spikes to the 130s, but 140 is usually the highest it ever goes. So this is very, very eye-opening for me. Stephanie, you actually, well, you sort of answered Stephanie's question. So she said, is it safe to spike glucose over 200 when eating an occasional dessert? It's just an interesting question. It's funny that she said 200. I'm not sure if she knew about this proxy. So if it's like the random dessert. I would say it's safe in the sense that if it happens once, like it's random, let's say it's Christmas, it's like an annual thing or something and your glucose goes to 200. I would say it's safe as in our body has systems to kind of clean that up. We have processes in place. When our glucose goes really high, that's going to cause some inflammation, some reactive oxygen species. But then we have all these counter mechanisms in place to help kind of clean that up, get things back to normal. What's really dangerous, of course, is if you have a glucose spike to 200 daily or even a couple times a week or maybe even once a week where the damage is starting to be more often than we can repair. That's when it gets very dangerous. But I would say 200 is a warning sign that there might be some metabolic dysfunction going on. Of course, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not, I'm not d- diagnosing here, but I would take that and kind of do a little bit more research. Maybe ask if you can get an oral glucose tolerance test, kind of get a fasting insulin level, see what else is going on. Because even if we give the system that glucose challenge I was talking about, 75 grams of pure glucose is what they use in an oral glucose tolerance test. It's a lot. You know, that's a pretty good glucose load coming from pure refined glucose. And even with that, we don't want to see it go above 200. So with a challenge to the system, in theory, we should be able to keep the glucose below a certain threshold and kind of recover from that with a normal insulin response and insulin sensitivity. So it's going above 200. I wouldn't say it's dangerous, but I would say it's a warning sign that there might be something more serious going on. Okay. I will say for me on the occasion that I've had a CGM on and done something that has caused a huge spike like that, it's like, it's a nice accountability partner. It's like, oh, (laughs) okay. Like (laughs) this is what happens when we do this. I really like what you said about the over certainty that some people have surrounding all of this. Cause I do think just in general in the health sphere that that's so dangerous when people Because we just, there's so much unknown about the body and so many different things work for different people. So I get really nervous when people make, you know, very certain statements about things, especially like you were talking about the postprandial response to foods. And there's a huge debate, I think, between like a higher spike that drops faster compared to like a lower spike that lasts longer that might have a higher area under the curve. So I feel like there's a lot of debate out there. Yeah. And I I would say like my most common answer on any podcast always starts with, it depends. (laughs) And I know it's, it's, it's not fun or exciting or flashy to kind of give all the nuance, but I think it's really important because I don't want to unnecessarily scare people or people to reach for something that is not necessarily going to give more benefit than we know of. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of conflicting information and I hope to kind of present the research that exists there in as much of an unbiased way as possible. You're definitely doing that. So, so thank you. We have some more spike questions while we're talking about them because you were talking about spikes in relation to what they go up to. So the maximum, but is there also any relevance to the actual change, like the number of the spike? So for example, DD says, She had heard, ideally, you want around a 30. What would be the measure? Yeah, she's probably talking about just kind of like delta, like the the change in glucose, I'm guessing, like the shift. Yep. 
she thinks 30 would be ideal. So if my CGM says I'm 80 and then I start to go over 135, that's really not so great, right? So is there a, a number for the actual like amount and change or is it more just the, those maximums? Yeah. So the things that we look at for the postprandial, the meal responses, we're looking at that peak, like we talked about, we're looking at the Delta, which she's referring to. It's how much your glucose has changed kind of regardless of where it started. And then we're also looking at what's called the area under the curve. So just, you could think of just like how much exposure has your body had to glucose and all are important. And all of them fall under that category that I would say is the most gray zone of this is where there's the least amount of research of what we should be aiming for, for optimal health. There's a good amount of research again for diabetics and preventing diabetic complications, but that's not, you know, exactly what we're looking for. What we do know is that glycemic variability, which is just your overall swings throughout the day. So not necessarily related to a meal, although most of the time when our glucose is swinging, it's because of something we ate. We know that those swings create more oxidative stress and damage than sustained high glucose levels, which is actually really fascinating. There's a lot of research on this where your glucose could be stable, but in the 200s, and you're seeing less inflammation and oxidative stress than if somebody has an average glucose of maybe 120, but they're spiking from 70 to 200 all day, you know, kind of up and down. So we know that those swings are actually more damaging, which is part of the reason we don't want huge jumps in the glucose. But the exact number, again, is a little bit more up for debate. What we have defined in our app, so in our app, when you log a meal, you get a glucose score associated with the meal, and it takes into account the, all the things I'm mentioning. So it gives one score that um, accumulates the all of these different factors and how we defined the threshold since there is a lack of research most of the research is observational like what happens when you put a cgm on a non-diabetic what what you know what does their glucose normally do that's kind of what we did we analyzed all of our data looked at specifically at people who do not have any insulin resistance and we saw you know 90 percent of people have a glucose delta of this where this is more elevated and kind of rare. And we set our thresholds off of that because it's kind of the best information we have right now. And we know that most people tend to have a delta or that jump in glucose less than 50 points, but usually they're also less than 30. So 30 to 50 seems to be pretty normal. And this is similar to kind of the observational data where you put a glucose, a CGM monitor on a non-diabetic, kind of see what happens usually they're jumping less than 30 points. So I think that's a good general rule of thumb. But again, if we're looking at the nuance, I think it's important to take a step back. And instead of looking at that very granular moment of your glucose, look at what happened in 24 hours. How did that contribute to my glucose for the day? Like, let's say you had a jump, a glucose spike of 60 points, but that was the only spike you had all day. And the rest of the day you were in the seventies and your average glucose is 85 and you never spiked above 120. I would say that's a pretty darn good glucose day, you know? Whereas if you had a shift to 60, but you did that six times in the day because you were snacking throughout the day and your average glucose was 120 and your standard deviation, which is how we measure glycemic variability is 20, which we want it below 14, then we might want to get those smaller and kind of contribute to a better overall glucose day. So I think it's important to kind of take a step back to and, and see how that is reflecting overall in, in your day-to-day -day changes. Okay. That was really, really fascinating. The part about the high blood glucose compared to the swings. To clarify about that, do those swings need to be high swings 
if a person is swinging, but it's within the quote healthy range, would that be different? Yep, exactly. So it doesn't mean that it's best to have completely flat glucose line. (laughs) So good question. It's when it's above normal levels of swing. So again, we use standard deviation, and this is pretty common in the literature too, to measure glycemic variability. And anything below 20 is considered normal in the research world. But we have noticed that I think 90% of our non-diabetics never go above 14. So we've set that as kind of the optimal in our app, because it's it seems to be very common. And I can send that study to you too. It's quite interesting. But yeah, it doesn't mean that there's no fluctuation at all. It's it's that big glycemic variability that's more dangerous. And you touched on a lot of things that we have follow-up questions about. So, okay, this is something I've been dying to ask you. And then another listener wrote in about it as well. So I tend to do cryotherapy almost every day. Do you do cryotherapy? When I get the opportunity, yeah, when it's close to me, like I, as I mentioned, when we start I'm traveling around, which does make it things a little bit more difficult, but yeah. Have you worn a CGM in cryo? I haven't, but I have worked with customers who have. Okay. So when I wear it every time, when I wear it, it spikes so high. And I, I'm like, is this real or is this like the cold freaking it out? But then what's interesting is it spikes pretty high and by high, so I'll be like in the 80s. And it'll go up to like 140. And then, but for the rest of the day, every time, same pattern, it starts going down and then it goes down to below what it was before cryo and then it stays low. Gina wrote in and she said, I've seen the same spike that you've spoken about, Melanie, when doing whole body cryotherapy, wondering if this is a real spike or just the effect of the cold on the sensor. Do you know if if it could be from the cold? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say most likely it is a fake spikes, so to speak. And it's just an interference with the sensor during that because the sensor has temperature recommendations that are kind of like normal temperature zones. I can't remember what the low threshold is, but it's certainly not as low as the temperature that's probably going on. So it's most likely an interference because we do know from research on cold therapy in general, ice baths, all kinds of cold therapy, that it actually lowers glucose and lowers insulin as well. So that effect you're seeing of lowered glucose levels afterwards is most likely the true physiological changes that are going on. It's actually really interesting, as you probably know, that cold therapy stimulates our brown fat, which have lots of mitochondria. And so they are activated. They burn all this energy and turn it into heat to help warm us up. And that burns through some of our glucose stores, which is what helps kind of get those glucose levels lower and also kind of lowers insulin levels with it. So We do know that cold therapy of all type is going to have a glucose lowering effect. And so the spike is most likely a temporary interference while the therapy is going on. Because I've been wondering if it's that or if it's that the intense stressor makes my liver just dump all this glucose into the bloodstream and then it's going down. Yeah, it's hard to say with certainty, but I, I don't see the spike when I see people doing like ice baths where the sensor isn't in the water. They just see the decrease. So that's why I'm hypothesizing it's most likely kind of an interference since we don't see it in that situation. Okay. That's really interesting. Actually, and I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and they were like, you should go in and wrap it up with something and you know try to keep it warm and see. I might do that and or I might try to time it with testing it with a glucometer. Yeah. I was going to say you could try pricking your finger and see if you can catch it. Yeah. So this is a really good question. This is from Diane and she says, 
spikes that we see with sauna, exercise, or stressing the body, do these spikes affect hemoglobin A1C or insulin levels? That is a really good question. So the sauna spike is a little bit different than kind of what's happening and maybe a spike from I just drank a soda or had a cookie. What's happening when we are in the hot therapy as opposed to the cold therapy is that there you will have a glucose spike. And this actually isn't just an interference with the sensor. We actually see glucose rise in the research where people are checking blood values during the sauna. And there's a couple explanations for this. I feel like it's still maybe not completely understood, but we do know it spikes. But a lot of this has to do with fluid distribution. So um, if you think about just like osmosis, glucose in the blood is going to depend on kind of fluid distribution. So when we're really dehydrated, our blood glucose is elevated as well because there's not as much water in the bloodstream. So that makes the concentration of glucose higher. So it's kind of similar when we're having the sauna, but it's also could be that factor of kind of a almost mimicking intense exercise, right? So we also see a glucose spike during intense exercise. We're getting our heart rate up, our body's working a little harder. And so we could see that glucose rise while we're in the sauna. What we know about the glucose spike during exercise is that it's a non-insulin mediated glucose spike. So long story short, most of the time when glucose rises, insulin also follows to kind of help bring that down. But we have some processes or situations where glucose could rise and insulin is not needed. And there are different glucose transporters on the cells and and some need insulin and some don't. And the cells and our muscles kind of have different potential functions depending on what's going on. So in the case of really intense exercise, you might have a glucose spike because your body really needs some energy right now. And the muscles can essentially kind of soak that up without needing insulin. What is theorized, at least in the literature, is that's a similar experience of what's going on in the sauna. So I would say it's very safe to assume that it's not going to cause insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia if you're doing sauna or HIT therapy. These are actually very healthy behaviors that can improve our insulin sensitivity the rest of the day, lower glucose the rest of the day. So very healthy habits that should not be of concern towards kind of the detrimental effects we might think of with glucose. When it comes to contributing towards an elevated A1C, I would say that that's unlikely because most of the time what's happening when you go in the sauna, maybe your glucose spikes to 140, but it's usually up there for maybe 30 minutes max. I'm not sure what your experience is, but most of the time when we're working with clients, it's a very short spike that comes back down when you're done. So it's a very short amount of time that your glucose is higher, which when we're thinking about an average glucose, then it's, it's not really moving the needle to have that small spike. And now I'm just trying to remember, because I tend to do a sauna session every single night. It's an infrared sauna. I don't recall seeing like a major spike for me personally, but I'm, I wonder if it probably does raise a little bit. Yeah, it's super interesting. I've seen it be really variable. Some people, it's, it's a really large spike. And for some people, it seems very minimal. I don't have an explanation for that. I have theories. My theories are that maybe if you do it really often, you get kind of used to it, where it's it's not just like if you do exercise often, you might not have as high of a glucose spike from high intensity exercise because you're more metabolically trained. I kind of have a theory that maybe it's like that with the sauna. You know, it's not as tough on the system, so to speak, if you're kind of trained for it, uh, you're used to it. 
but I'm not sure, but I do see variable responses, but a lot of people will have pretty high spikes. So it's not uncommon if, if anyone's experiencing that. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an near-infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near-infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E. 
with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Just goes back to what we were saying about how we're all individual. So you answered April's question. She wanted to know how exercise affects glucose spikes. Then Joan had, she says, my reading suggests that exercise should reduce glucose, but my experience is the opposite. Walking didn't affect it either way, but every time I got on my bike, my blood sugar would shoot up reaching around 140 within five minutes of beginning my ride and going over 160 eventually. It dropped down quickly again after I lock it up. I have a slice of pizza to see how I respond compared to a short ride. And it was a bit shocking to see the two spikes, exercise and carbohydrates were quite similar. So my question is, why does my blood glucose rise with exercise? My theory is the liver releases glycogen to fuel the muscles, but my muscles don't want it. I don't know how to test that. So that kind of ties into what you were saying with you know insulin-mediated glucose uptake. And I was going to ask if people are releasing this glucose while exercising, but they have insulin. I'm not insinuating Joan has this, but I have heard there's a theory that insulin resistance starts at the muscle if they're insulin resistant at the muscle, are they not going to uptake that glucose that's released from exercise? Like, is there a potential danger there? Or that's a little bit of a nuanced question. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that that's an interesting question. I would say that is an abnormal response. So I'll, I'll first say what we typically see with exercise and then try to hypothesize what might be going on in this particular situation. But most of the time with exercise, we could kind of see two varying responses. One is with kind of the lower steady state type of exercise. So maybe walking, jogging, lightweight lifting, something like of that sort. We typically see glucose either stay stable or decrease a little bit. Kind of like what she said. Yeah. She doesn't see much of a change. Yeah. And the opposite, when something's really high intense, high intensity. So doing sprints, you know, maybe she's doing like a Tabata. I don't know exactly what she's doing on the bikes, maybe climbing or really heavy weightlifting. We typically see a glucose spike and you can think about these differences basically as supply and demand. So if you are doing something low energy, kind of steady state exercise, then we have enough energy in the system to supply that demand. And so we kind of stay at a steady state. We're using energy, but we can also replenish it and fuel it at the pace it's going. Where something more high intensity, suddenly you're demanding a huge amount of energy from the system and it doesn't have that demand right there. So it creates some. And that's exactly as she mentioned. Usually this comes in the form of liver gluconeogenesis. So your liver is creating some glucose really quickly in order to fuel that intense demand for energy. Because our body would much rather create some extra glucose and have that temporary glucose spike than not create enough and be in an energy deficit and get hypoglycemic. Our bodies work very hard not to do that. So we tend to overshoot rather than undershoot as just like normal physiological response. So usually we see that spike, but again, as I mentioned before, it's different than a spike from if you're eating a candy bar or drinking a soda and that your body is needing that energy, right? It's demanding it and it's using it right away and it's not necessarily an insulin-mediated response. And so 
It's a healthy response. It's total normal, totally normal physiology. So we wouldn't be surprised to see a spike. So I'm not sure what she's doing on the bike. Usually like casual cycling, we wouldn't see a spike, but if she's doing sprints or really high intensity, it might be normal to see that glucose spike. And then afterwards, if you're eating a meal, typically if we've just worked out of any type, you know, the steady state, the hit, the weightlifting, strength training, all of those things improve insulin sensitivity. They help improve fat oxidation. They help increase glycogen accumulation, all of these things that work towards better glucose control after a workout. So usually people see a lower glucose spike after a workout. If you're still seeing a glucose spike, an experiment I would prompt is to eat that same meal, but without the exercise. And maybe it's even higher than the spike you're seeing right now after the workout. It's possible that it's blunting it some, but it's still maybe just a, a meal you're not tolerating that well. Another thing that is just kind of something I've actually learned through my experiences. So I do a lot of kind of intense hiking on the weekends. So I might do a long hike halfway through, stop and eat my lunch. What I have noticed is that if I don't let my heart rate get down low enough and kind of get more into relaxed parasympathetic state before I start eating, I have a higher glucose response. And this kind of comes towards like eating in that stress state. Like if your heart rate is going really high and you're eating, um, you don't digest as well, you don't metabolize as well. We're in this stress state. It's not a great time to be metabolizing food. So one thing that's just kind of a tip to think about is making sure that you're giving yourself enough time to kind of be out of that acutely stressful state before you're eating. And then also hydration. Like I mentioned, dehydration can contribute to elevated glucose levels. So if you just worked out really intensely, got super sweaty, maybe got a little dehydrated, that can contribute to a higher glucose level afterward. So just a couple of different things for her or others who experience that to consider. That's one of the reasons I think for me personally, doing intermittent fasting and a one meal a day pattern works so well is because I don't eat until like my, my work is all done. Like I eat in the evening and I'm always like, I have my rituals surrounding it in a way. I'm in the parasympathetic state by the time I eat. And I do think that that makes a huge difference. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people don't talk about that enough or underplay it as maybe like, you know, not as hard science, but it's so important. I've seen it all the time where people have their highest glucose spikes of the day at lunch while they're at work, eating in front of their computer screen while they're boss is calling them and they're trying to type at the same time. And it's just like, they're stressed and they eat that same meal on the weekend and it's perfectly fine. We see this all the time. It's really impactful. And you actually touched on this. So April was saying, what kind of experiments would you recommend doing once you have the monitor, like eating before you exercise, eating after you exercise, opening your eating window with protein, carbs, or fat? You touched on some of those then, but do you have some favorite experiments for people to run? Yeah. And that's where, as you mentioned, if you just do the two weeks, it like opens up all the ideas for experiments, but it's not enough time to do them all. So there's so many things. I'm still, every time I put on a sensor and I've worn so many, I have like a new idea. I'm like, oh, I haven't tried that. And it's like, oh my gosh, how have I never tried that? But some of my favorite is, especially if you're consuming carbohydrates, you know, I know not everyone does, but if you are, that's a great thing to experiment with is try different carbohydrates, swap them out, you know, eat the same meal, but swap out a different fruit for another one or a different starchy vegetable for another one to kind of see which one is working best. And also level of processing, you know, just a smoothie versus whole fruit, instant oats versus steel cut oats, the different type of processing can make a big difference. Um, I would also say kind of macro timing is really interesting. So trying 
carbohydrates on their own versus protein first versus fat first? What kind of difference does that make? Time of the day, you know, if you're having a good high glucose spike at an evening meal, try that meal instead for lunch if you're eating it, kind of swapping those around. And then, as you mentioned, with exercise. So that's a big one. Try if you're having, especially if you're having a glucose spike to a food you like. That's what I think is important. If you're like, I ate this chicken taco at a restaurant and I'm probably never going to eat chicken tacos normally. And I had a big glucose spike. It's like, whatever. But if you're like, I make chicken tacos every Friday then I, and I had a glucose spike, it's, that's a good moment to experiment. And maybe that's trying a different, you know, carbohydrate with it than you normally do swapping that testing different portion sizes, having some protein beforehand or the exercise. So go do a workout before the meal, do one after, go on a walk after, try different ways of kind of seeing if you can mitigate that glucose spike. All of those I think are really good ones to start with that are just kind of generalized. Yeah, I will say my favorites out of the ones you just mentioned. I'm I get a little bit obsessive with the difference in how carbs from fruit versus like starches affect blood sugar. Like for me, I can eat all the fruit, all the fruit, as long as it's just fruit. But if I add in just a little bit of a starch, it's like shoots through the roof, which is really fascinating to me. It's so interesting. Yeah. And I, I have the most unusual glucose responses, I feel like, because it doesn't match at all with glycemic index. But, you know, I have a lower response to white potatoes than sweet potatoes, a lower response to white rice than brown rice, just, you know, all these things that maybe are counterintuitive that I wouldn't know unless I had tried it. And, you know, you start to realize which ones might work best, which ones can be kind of the go-tos. So yeah, kind of swapping around all those different carbohydrates, I think is endlessly interesting. Yeah. And the other one that you touched on that I love, I'm obsessed with the timing of like the macronutrient timing. And intuitively, like before wearing a CGM, I intuitively felt that because my meal, the ordering of it, and again, for listeners, this is just me. The point of all this is people you know, need to get a CGM and see what happens with them. But for me, historically, before wearing a CGM, I've always eaten in a pattern where I start with wine and then my meal is usually like high protein. And then if I'm doing high carb, low fat, then I end with the fruit. And it's interesting for me because what I see on my CGM pretty consistently is the alcohol. And we got a question about this that I'll read in a second, but the alcohol lowers it the bulk of the meal, the protein lowers it. And by it, I mean my blood sugar. And then the fruit kind of brings it back up and is the bump there. But so Rose, for example, said, why does alcohol make my blood sugar drop so much? Seems like that wouldn't be the case. Do you play around with alcohol or do people see different responses with alcohol? Yeah. And we typically see, again, kind of two varying responses depending on what type of alcohol. So you can imagine that something like a sugary cocktail or more of a a darker or heavier beer tends to have more of a immediate spike when you're drinking them because they're more carbohydrate rich or sugary wine or kind of like a sweeter dessert wine would have something type of similar effect where we kind of see that glucose spike where most commonly we see that more dry wines and liquor in general without the kind of sugary mixer to go with it tend to actually have a glucose lowering effect as you mentioned so many people will notice a glucose dip out sometimes hours after drinking and 
This is, again, could have a couple potential different reasons, but the one that is most commonly stated in the literature is that the body is prioritizing the metabolism of alcohol over metabolism of everything else, right? In the state of oxidative priority, alcohol is first in the system. So it's kind of breaking that down and it's not necessarily maintaining normal glucose production and homeostasis during that time. Interestingly, some people, and we see such different thresholds for different people, some people will notice that they have a higher fasting glucose the next morning after drinking just one glass of any alcohol. I mean, this might be due to kind of that disruption in normal glucose production, but then a lot of people won't notice that effect, that elevated fasting glucose, unless they have two or three or maybe even four glasses of alcohol. So everyone's kind of seems to have a different threshold of how much might have a detrimental effect the next day. We definitely know from kind of like chronic alcohol consumption or excessive, so high amounts in one sitting, that it does reduce that liver glycogen storage ability, kind of impairs insulin sensitivity the next day and could lead to higher glucose levels and higher glucose spikes the next day. But for a lot of people, that effect isn't seen just from like one or two glasses. So definitely an experiment for people to run. Yeah, (laughs) another fun one. (laughs) I'm just thinking now, have you run any experiments on stevia? I have, and I actually don't see any effect when I um, consume it. So my glucose pretty much stays exactly the same. But again, this is something where we actually see quite variable responses. I have certainly seen some people that have a little glucose spike, usually pretty minimal, but still increase nonetheless from stevia or even other artificial sweeteners or sweeteners of any type. It's quite variable. Usually it's either nothing or a small increase. The reason I was wondering about it was I recently was doing a deep dive on the literature on it, and it's really fascinating. Like one study was talking about how it seems to have a beneficial effect on the pancreas and insulin production in the context of carbs. So like it helps if there's carbs around, otherwise it didn't have that effect. I know I'm being very casual in how I'm interpreting that study, but it it was just basically, there seems to be a lot of nuance going on with it. So I I haven't had Stevie in a while, but now I'm wanting to to wear CGM and, and do some experiments also in the diet world. So I think a lot of people, especially on low carb diets, get a little bit surprised often with what they may find with CGMs. So we have two questions about that. Joan says, I purchased a Freestyle Libra and wore it for two weeks. I've been low carb for nearly two years, so I was expecting very low glucose, but instead my averages were above 95. It's not disastrous, but it must be all from gluconeogenesis or breakdown of triglycerides, so I am surprised it was that high. My normal meals did not elevate it at all, possibly dropping it a bit, so I know there isn't much carbs in that. And then Stephanie said, can a high-fat diet actually keep glucose elevated when the body is generating the glucose endogenously? People on low-carb diets, is it possible that they can have high blood sugar levels despite not taking in the carbs? It is possible. And we work with a lot of customers who have been following a ketogenic diet or very low carbohydrate diet for a long time. So we've seen this quite a bit. And in the literature, it's it's called either physiological insulin resistance, or some people call it adaptive glucose sparing. And first, it's important to differentiate that this is not the same as pathological insulin resistance, which is what is happening with diabetes. So if we think about diabetes, our glucose is high and our insulin is high, 
which means we have a lot of energy that's not being utilized well. It's basically a disease of poor energy partitioning. Like we have all this energy, but we're not using it well. It's not working. Whereas physiological insulin resistance, glucose might be on the higher side, but insulin is low. So it's more of what I would consider kind of adapting to the environment. Our bodies are so adaptable. You know, we're incredible species. And if over time the body is realizing that you're not giving it glucose exogenously, so we're not eating carbohydrates, it doesn't need to do the same systems of if we're eating carbohydrates all the time. So it adapts. And usually we start to see this, at least in the clients we've worked with, we usually see this if you've been following a very low carbohydrate diet pretty strictly, so not deviating from it at all for usually at least a year is when we start to kind of see this adaptation occur. And typically what's happening is that the body is now favoring ketones and fatty acids as their primary fuel source, mostly running off of that, specifically the muscles. So usually muscles are our biggest sink for glucose, but when we're kind of adapting, we're preferring these other fuel sources instead. Uh, But the body needs to still make sure it's making enough glucose, especially if it's not getting any from the diet, because some parts of the body, specifically the brain and other systems are glucose dependent. You know, they really can only run off of glucose. And so What happens or what is theorized, but what we've seen working with customers is that fasting glucose starts to rise over time. That kind of average glucose level is just a little bit higher than maybe in somebody who's not following a long-term ketogenic diet. But if you were to check fasting insulin, it would be super low. Uh, So it's not unusual for us to see people whose glucose is resting in the 90s, low 100s, sometimes even 110 in this situation, but their glucose is never fluctuating because they're not eating carbohydrates. So their swings are essentially zero and their average glucose is usually the same as their fasting glucose. So, you know, in the nineties or low hundreds. And then of course the, the follow-up question I always get is, well, is this a bad thing? Like, is, is there any harm to this adaptation? And I don't think that we know the answer to this. I would hypothesize, no, it's probably not anything to be too worried about, especially if you've checked insulin and it's low. I would recommend if your glucose is kind of creeping up over time on a low carbohydrate diet, just make sure, just get a fasting insulin level, double check. And then if your average glucose is starting to go above that 105 threshold, like we talked about, then maybe it would be a little concerning because there could be just some high levels of glycation happening throughout the body if we have a high average 24-7. But if your average is 95, you're never really swinging. I don't really see that to be any potential issue, but we don't have a clear answer to that. One thing I will caveat with is that this is documented in women who are following a ketogenic diet who then do that oral glucose tolerance test when they're pregnant. So this is required at this point in time when you're pregnant. And this how this adaptation was first identified, where that these women were failing the OGTTs, getting labeled as diabetic, but really they weren't. They were in this kind of physiological state. And we know from studying these women that if they start to incorporate carbohydrates back into their diet, and usually it's about three days of eating at least 150 grams of carbohydrates, this phenomenon goes away and the adaptation changes and they have a normal oral glucose tolerance test result. So it's not the same as diabetes where three days of change doesn't make you suddenly have normal glucose levels. So it's more of an adaptation than a pathological state. So that's what I think is important to differentiate. So I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing as long as your average glucose is still below 105. 
What I would be careful with though, is if you're going, if you're following a ketogenic diet, but then every once in a while you have a, a big carb meal, you know, maybe every other weekend you go out and you eat 400 grams of carbohydrates, which happens all the time. We see this all the time with our, our ketogenic members. And then they have glucose spikes to the 300s, 400s, because their body's kind of in this state of physiological insulin resistance. And that is not desirable. <laughs> that is definitely going to have kind of an effect on the body. It's going to take a while for that to recover. It's going to be a lot of inflammation. So if you're somebody who wants to incorporate carbohydrates here and there, we might want to, we would work with them on maybe some more like metabolic flexibility so that you kind of have a good system to tolerate both carbs and fat as fuel and kind of switch back and forth. But if you're like, I love being keto and I don't really miss carbs, I don't need to have these big carb blowout meals, then I, I don't really see an issue with it. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. I'm so curious to know because when I was low carb for a long time, I definitely had higher resting fasting blood sugars, but I wasn't wearing a CGM. This is, you know, years ago. Like I would love to know after meals if it was sort of that like higher resting flat line or if it was spiking. So you sort of answered this question. Stephanie wanted to know how long does it take to restore insulin sensitivity after long term two to three years of ketogenic macros. So it sounds like it can happen faster than like, it's not going to take years. No, we usually see it. Yeah. Happen pretty quickly of just kind of like reincorporating carbohydrates. Usually you're going to have some, some dysregulated glucose values for those couple days. So if you want to ease into it, we can kind of titrate carbs in and that'll take a little bit longer. And it also helps if people are, are making sure to kind of in, engage in physical activity, specifically strength training that kind of helps with that insulin sensitivity and kind of easing back in. And then two questions that relate to what you just talked about with the diabetes test for gestational diabetes. Calame says, why aren't they recognized for testing sugars in lieu of the gestational diabetes test during pregnancy? And then sort of similar question, Jessica wants to know, are there any studies in progress using CGM two or four times a week to replace or enhance glucose testing during annual physicals. So do you think there's a future for this of using CGM for these testings? I have a feeling eventually, and the, the, the real question is how long will it take? But I have a feeling eventually that it will probably be optional of somebody could opt out of the OGTT and wear a CGM instead. Um, I know some kind of like naturopaths are already doing this, even though it's not technical rule at this point in time, I think what will happen is it's just slow 
to get there. There's research that's already been done that is using CGMs in pregnant women, kind of comparing it. So there are some out there, and I'm sure there's more research being done, but it's a little slow to make those regulatory changes. And I would say that the biggest barrier, if I had to just hypothesize, is that it's easier for a physician to get a test result back and say normal, not normal, than to analyze two weeks of their CGM data. It's, it's more to put on the physician. I think we would have to do something where, you know, the CGM would spit out some type of like diagnostic yes or no. Yes or no. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the, the program. Yeah. So I think if you have a little bit of a different physician you're working with that maybe is more concierge or maybe gets to spend more time with their clients or they're more knowledgeable in this space, they're probably open to it or or would be in the future. But I don't know how long it'll take until it's mainstream. So we have some practical questions about just actually using them. Zoe wants to know, do they have to go on your arm or can they be placed in a more discreet area? Candice, similar question. She says, I don't have one, so I would be curious if you can put the sensor anywhere else on the body so no one can see that you are wearing it. And Catherine said, I wondered the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are two major companies making these devices. One is Abbott, who makes the Freestyle Libre, and then the other is Dexcom. The Dexcom devices are approved for both the back of the arm and the abdomen. So those are two approved locations where the Freestyle Libre, which is the device we use at this point in time, is only approved for the back of the arm. So it's the only location that has been clinically studied with the device to say, yes, this is working. Yes, this is FDA approved to be you know within the accuracy guidelines we recommend. So by official rules, if you're using the Libre, only the back of the arm. However, we have had people who don't follow those rules and still put it on their abdomen or other places. And I would say nine times out of 10, it ends up perfectly normal. I have seen a handful of people who try it in other places and the data just looks kind of funky. So it's it, it would be off-label use for the Libre. Okay. And actually speaking to that, Bridget says, is there a threshold of fat that is necessary for accurate CGM measurement? I don't have a lot of fat in my arms. Could this be why my CGM readings never seem to match my finger pricks regardless of the 15 minute delay, which I'm glad she pointed out the delay. There isn't an official threshold that I'm aware of, but I know that this is an issue because the type one community, type one diabetes is typically, you know, not lifestyle related and it usually occurs in children, you know, when you're younger, you get diagnosed. And so small children with type 1 diabetes tend to be very small and not have a lot of body fat on them. And they do have issues sometimes with the sensor. So this is kind of anecdotally documented. And so it can be a conflicting variable. But luckily, at least in our app, we allow a manual calibration. So as we were talking about, just kind of the logistics, the way the sensor works, there's that little tiny flexible microfilament that goes just below the surface of the skin. And it goes into your interstitial fluid. And if it's not completely bathed in fluid, then it can be further off from a true value. So you might have to calibrate more if you don't have as much fat on your arm and it can kind of interfere with the placement a little bit. So it's not that it's not usable, but it can cause a bigger discrepancy in readings. We did get questions about the accuracy. So a few that all kind of go together. So maybe you can address them. Meredith wanted to know, are they inaccurate when reporting low blood sugars? And I'll tag onto that to ask you if 
theorem, more or less accurate at high or low sugar levels. Melissa said, so CGMs monitor interstitial fluid, like you were just saying, not blood glucose. I've heard on your podcast and in conversations with Dave Asprey that there can be a 20-point difference in either direction, but it's the trends we're looking for. So are CGMs really worth it? I've used CGMs for about a year now, and I'm really good at understanding what foods and behaviors lead to what trends, but my numbers are more accurate with finger pricks. I guess I'm just wondering what else is there to glean from a CGM after a certain point. Didi said, I've heard that CGMs aren't necessarily accurate, but are precise is my understanding. How do blood pricks compare? I feel like with finger pricks, I have more variability in numbers than my CGM shows. Is this just perceived due to poor data collection? So the accuracy of them. Yeah, that the accuracy is a great question. So for all CGM devices, whether it's the Libre or the Dexcom, they're all FDA approved to be able to be used in the diabetic community for making medical decisions for being to use an adjunct to uh, insulin dosing. So the regulatory authorities have approved that the accuracy is good enough for these purposes, but it is not necessarily perfectly accurate nonetheless. So essentially what the FDA rule says is that the values must be within 15% of true results and the gold standard of an actual accurate level would be a blood test. So you go to the lab and you get a fasting glucose level. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the finger prick accuracy in a second, but that's not the gold standard. So when people are kind of comparing the finger prick to the CGM, neither of them are that perfectly accurate. So sometimes you're kind of chasing a unicorn is what I call it, but I'll get to that in a second. But uh, so they have to be within 15%, 95% of the time, and then within 20%, 99% of the time. So Most of the time, they're going to be within that 15% wiggle room, which 15% can be a lot. So I completely understand how that can be confusing. So essentially, what it is saying is that while, let's say I'm in a fasted glucose, fasted state, and I just went to the lab and got my glucose and it was 80 and my CGM is reading 95, that would be within 15%. And we actually allow a manual calibration in our app, which None of the other apps besides Dexcom allows for, and that can lower that value to match more closely to kind of an accurate standard. But just like one of your listeners mentioned, um, there's a difference between accuracy and the absolute value versus precision. So the devices are actually shown shown to be very precise, usually within 2 to 3%, meaning that it might be 15 points higher but it's consistently 15 points higher, which is why it is really helpful about trends. So again, let's say that your glucose jumps 80 points in a meal and takes four hours to come back down to normal. Whether that baseline is 15 points higher or lower than true value, that's a trend that is really interesting. Same with maybe you start incorporating a walk after your meals and you see your average glucose drop 20 points. Whether it's actually dropped from 180 or 110 to 90, it's 20 point drop nonetheless. So those are the kind of trends we really want to pay attention to. But if you do have a recent lab value to kind of compare to, you can calibrate that in our app. And what I will say about the finger pricks is they fall under that same FDA rule of accuracy recommendations. So some devices tend to be a little bit more accurate than others. It definitely varies brand to brand of I'm just kind of quality of the accuracy, but the finger prick glucometer devices aren't the gold standard. So let's say you check with a glucometer and it's 
15% off, but on a higher and the CGM is 15% off on a lower. And then you check your glucometer again in five minutes and then it's 15% in a different direction. That can be very confusing because you're seeing a different trend on your glucometer than your CGM. The CGM is very good for precision. So I always recommend kind of just adjusting absolute value and not adjusting the CGM calibration every five minutes because the glucometer could be more all over the place. I've even been in the situation where I check at the same exact moment in time, one hand versus the other, and they're 20 points different with a glucometer. So it's not a gold standard. And so I I think that can confuse people because they're used to using their glucometer. And it's a good proxy again, but it's not the gold standard. So we don't want to use that as, as our truth, you know? Yeah. The thing I found most helpful for me, because now I've worn so many, I pretty much, I can get a sense if one of the sensors is off. And I've wondered more because I was talking with somebody else in the CGM sphere this week about it. I used to think, oh, the CGM itself is off, but maybe it's like the placement of it that made it be off more than the actual you know, CGM. But the calibration really, really helps. For my own calibration of it, I like to do it at a consistent time when I know my blood sugar level historically tends to be pretty much the same, which is in the evening right before I'm you know, having dinner. So not in the middle of the day, you know, when it's swinging from like stress swings and like, you know, different things. I found that pretty helpful for me. Yeah. I would definitely recommend doing it when it's stable just because it's, it's easier related to kind of the delay that you mentioned. The CGM is measuring that interstitial fluid. And I always compare blood glucose to interstitial fluid, kind of like a train. So blood glucose is at the front of the train and where interstitial fluid is like a car at the back of the train. So if that's level ground, they're, they're at the same value, you know, they're moving at same speed. But if you go over a hill, the blood glucose goes up first, followed by that back train a little bit later. So there's a delay when our glucose is fluctuating in the CGM. And usually, you know, on average in the research, it says 15 to 30 minute delay, depending on the speed of which your glucose is changing. But when it's stable, it's, it should be about the same as blood values. It's a better time to calibrate and compare. And yeah, and I think for listeners, if they haven't used one before, I mean, that might seem a little bit intense that it can be, quote, off by that amount. But what you understand once you wear it is you get this huge overall picture with the calibration aspect to it. It's not as intense as it might seem, I think, for most people and the potential for it to be misleading, at least. Yeah, absolutely. We do offer dietitian support with our app. So you get a one-on-one dietitian. And if anyone's confused on how to calibrate or, or what it means, they're really helpful kind of explaining that and, and helping guide the trends and how to adjust it if needed. One last question, because I think a lot of people are probably really wanting to get one, but they might have this fear. Shannon says, I'm just simply scared of them. Something in my arm freaks me out. Is there another way? I'm scared it will hurt that a needle is in my arm. What if I bump it by accident? (laughs) Needles are something I've had to get better at, but things like IVs and a CGM make me have a lot of anxiety. It's a great question. And I'm sure you can kind of share your anecdotal experience as well as putting them on, but they truly are painless. If you've ever pricked your finger with a glucometer, that is way worse. <laughs> yeah, way, way worse. <laughs> so if you, it's not like getting an IV. It's not like getting blood work done. And the needle's only there for insertion. So it just places that really flexible microfilament under the skin. And then you don't have a needle in there the whole time, which is why for the two weeks when the sensor is on, you really don't feel it. You sleep with it on, you shower with it on, you work out with it on, and most people don't notice it at all. 
And so it's not like there's this like harsh needle stuck under your skin for two weeks. It's not like that at all. And and it really is painless, but nobody ever believes me. So (laughs) biased. I was so nervous too, like the first time, because it looks scary. Like the applicator looks, I won't lie, it looks intense. You don't feel it. You just don't. I mean, maybe somebody on a blue moon feels it, but it's almost shocking. Like you do it and you're like, oh. Yeah, it really is shocking. And if you're nervous, I would recommend just have, if you have someone at work or a spouse or someone you live with, just have them put it on for you. It can be less intimidating if someone just does it. And then you'll see that it, it didn't hurt. And for listeners, if you check out my Instagram, I think I've recorded like five different reels showing how to put it on and you'll see how approachable it is. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. And we didn't even really talk at length about the actual NutriSense app, but for listeners, when you get the app, it's so cool because I know there's a lot of people might think that it can seem confusing. Like, how do I interpret the data? How do I, you know, make sense of it all? And NutriSense with the app, you get your numbers, you can see how you're reacting to meals. It gives you a lot of information that it interprets for you. And then on top of that, like Kara was saying, you can work with a nutritionist. So it makes it just so approachable, so easy to understand. I'm I'm so grateful for what you guys are doing. And that's actually perfect for my last question, which it's the question that I ask every guest, and I'm sure I asked it to you last time. So I'll tweak it a little bit. Normally I ask, what is something you're grateful for? But what is something that you're grateful that you learned from wearing a CGM for yourself? Oh, that's such a great question. There's so many nuggets of knowledge that I'll just never, I'll I'll do for the rest of my life. You know, just foods I know I've learned better than others, like simple habits. But I think the most important information I'm grateful for learning through this experience is really just the power of simple movement, you know, related to the walks or just kind of moving throughout the day because it's so easy. It's so easy for me to actually do. And when you see something that works with your own eyes from your own body, it's a hundred times more meaningful to actually do that. You know, how many times do I hear people say, you need to stand throughout the day, shouldn't sit all day, you know, make sure to go on walk. You don't just want to exercise. You also need to move throughout the day. You can hear that, but when you see how much of a difference it makes, it's a whole different level of importance for your health. And so little habits that now I do all day, if I was just in a long meeting or after this, I'll probably do, you know, a bunch of body weight squats real quick, just to kind of move my body around simple things like that, that take me less than a minute. I do all day now, and I probably wouldn't have paid much attention to that before. And I think it's going to reap benefits for longevity. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Well, thank you. I'm so grateful for what you're doing. I'm also super grateful. You guys have given my audience an amazing offer on NutriSense. So you can go to melanieavalon.com slash NutriSense CGM and using the code melanieavalon will get you $40 off. So I'm, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for that. And then again, the show notes for this episode, there will be a full transcript. I'll put links to everything. That will be at melanieavalon.com slash CGM questions. So thank you so much, Kara. Any other links you want to put out there or any else that you would like to share with the audience about all of this? Um, no, I think we covered a lot, but you know, we also, we have a blog on our website, Nutrisense.io. We're always kind of putting out different information and also just, you know, general social media. You can follow us, Nutrisense.io, where we're sharing different things we're learning uh, through the research or either through our own experiments. So I'm um, just a, a good place to kind of 
keep up to date. Awesome. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. I milked all of your time. We got, we got to actually almost all the questions. So I'm, I'm really excited and this has been amazing. We'll have to stay in touch and maybe bring you back on for part three in the future. Definitely. It's always a pleasure, Melanie. All right. Thanks, Kara. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.